Welcome to Arise Church, where we exist so that you can experience God. I pray that this message will encourage, inspire, and grow your faith in God. Enjoy the message. Well, my name is Ken. I get the privilege of being the executive pastor here at Arise, and we're going to continue to experience God's presence. We're going to continue to have some fun today. But first, we want to celebrate. So last week, we received an offering to to help really begin and kick off our Arise Network. And one of the big pushes of that was to go ahead and begin to to help sponsor 12 local pastors over there in India and build some churches. And let me tell you, I want to celebrate you this morning because, man, you guys showed up and all of that immediate need has been met. And we've got other, other finances there, resources to be able to kick off some other things within that Arise network that we're going to be able to do. I love it when we get on board together to see God's church being built, not just here, but all over the world because he's doing something. Come on. Amen. And we get to be a part of that. And that is amazing. I do want to invite you to something very special coming up this week. Also this Friday night and Saturday is our apologetics conference. And it's going to be amazing. Have you enjoyed the apologetic series so far? Good, good. Well, we're going to continue that this Friday and Saturday. In fact, the best thing about it is it's free. Uh, Some of y'all didn't get that. I'm talking for E, free. Now listen, y'all, I like free. You might go to Publix today and you might get yourself some buy one, get one free. This one, you don't even got to buy one. You just get one free, free, free. Oh, Pastor Ken, you get what you pay for. Listen, not, not here, not, this, not with this one. When you sign up for the Apologetics Conference and you come Friday night and Saturday, you get one of the most preeminent apologists of our generation to come and talk in Frank Turek. Dr. Frank Turek has been uh, doing apologetics for a long time. He travels around the world. He goes to universities. He has debates with uh, atheists and, and people who are way smarter than I am because I can't even tell you all they do. And then he answers questions of college students. And we know college students are pretty smart and ask some tough questions. And he's going to be here, and it's, listen, it's for E. So how do you sign up? You go to the myrisechurch.com. You can sign up there. You can sign up on on the Church Center app, but you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be absolutely incredible. It's amazing. Come on out. All right, so we're going to continue our apologetic series today. And listen, man, when Pastor Brent asked me to do this message, I really got nervous. Can, can I share a secret with you? Only you're going to know just between you and I, all right? He asked me to talk about God and science. And my two worst grades in the entire career of my schooling education was in science. I don't like science, y'all. Like seventh and eighth grade science, D and a half. <laughs> like the teacher had to find ways for me, you know, the, the, the progress report would get sent home. I'd get grounded for uh, the, the, the remainder of the nine weeks until I got my grade up. And finally, somehow by the end of the nine weeks, 
I would somehow pull it together and pass the class. Worst grades that I got, science. In fact, when I went to high school, it became my mission not to discover the classes that I would need to be an excellent college student. No, it became my mission to avoid science at all costs. I made all of my choices on my schedule based on how much science can I get away from and get out of. Sorry, if you love science, you great. Love you, awesome. I did not. And I was horrible at it. I was horrible at it. So because I went to five different schools in three states, I was able to skirt some laws, and so I only had to take biology and marine biology. See, I got to be a senior, and they said, how many science credits do you have? This is like my fifth school. And I said, one. And they said, oh, you have to have one more to graduate. And Florida didn't, at that time, require chemistry, didn't require physics. And I'm like, praise you, Jesus. What other sciences do you have? They said, marine biology. I'm like, that's the blow-off I need. Yes and amen. And yes, it was. And I realized later in life that part of my discomfort with science is the fact that I grew up in the church. And there was this idea that came from both science and from people in religion that science and God were at war. That there was this tension between God and science. So I'd get into science class and they would tell me how all the things I learned in my religious studies were wrong. And then I'd go home and I'd tell my dad who was a pastor and he would tell me how much science was wrong. And I'd sit there in the middle of this conflict being like, I'm just a middleman. I'm just a guy who's supposed to be learning, I don't know. And it made me very, very uncomfortable. So I decided when Pastor Brent asked me, what if you and I just went on a journey today to discover from a dude who never liked science why science and God are actually not at war. Why science, which is actually just the search for truth, isn't at war with God, and God is definitely not at war with a search for truth. So that's what we're going to do today. Is that all right? Now, I'm going to ask you, just like Pastor Brent has asked you, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you to hold your hand out just like this. Come on, everybody in the room, hold your hand out just like this. Just like this, make it, make it like a little circle. And I want you to take and, and do this number right here. All right, good. You just put your thinking cap on. That means you're thinking with me. So I'm glad because we're going to get a little nerdy today. I'm going to put my nerd, my nerd pants, glasses on, whatever it is, and we're just going to get a little nerdy. But the first thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to ask the question, because we're sitting in church and we're talking about God, what does God say that we should see about him? What does God say that we should know? And I found a couple of really cool passages, like in, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. So if I'm reading that correctly, that means the heavens declare the glory of God, that I should be able to see God's glory, evidence of God in the heavens, right? And, and the skies proclaim, you know, when, when somebody proclaims, I can also hear. So we're talking about our senses here that I should be able to see, hear, and understand God's glory. 
And then in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says this, since what may be known about God is plain to them, well, I have to ask the question, plain to who? That's us. It's plain. The word plain means that we should be able to understand it. We should be able to perceive it, to know it. We should be able to see it with our eyes. God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So we should be able to see through science, through this search for truth, that God is real, that he exists, and that he is who he says he is. So what does science say about that? Well, I think that a scientific study called cosmology proves the existence of God. Cosmology really begins to talk about what the creation or the formation of the universe, how the universe began. And one of the first things that we need to look at when we're talking about this is the first law of thermodynamics. And you might say, thermo who? Yeah, I, listen, I read that word like four times. I used the pronunciation thing in the dictionary. It's thermodynamics, all right? Y'all write, write the enunciation down, you know, phonetically. Got it? Okay, good. All right. So the first law of thermodynamics, we're going to put it right up on the screen, states that heat energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can, however, be transferred from one location to another and converted to and from other forms of energy. So here's where this law leaves us. What it says is basically you cannot create new energy. Energy can only go from one form to another. We've not observed it. We've not been able to do it. You cannot create energy. It can only change forms. So this leaves us with a couple of possibilities for our universe. So I want you to do something with me. Imagine that this is our universe, all right? I know it's a storage bin that came from my garage, but imagine it's our universe. So it means that either our universe is what we would call an open system, and that means that something outside of our universe is inputting things into it, or our universe is a closed system. And it exists all by itself with nothing outside of the universe inputting any energy into it or anything else. Now, if our universe is a closed system, then either it began all by itself and the energy that we have that we see in our universe was created all by itself, which the first law of thermodynamics says can't happen, right? Or... The universe and all the energy has always existed. Hmm. So we're left with two choices. Either we, our universe is a closed system, and it's always been, and it started out with a ton of energy, or our universe is an open system, and something has and can input energy into the system. Make sense? This brings us to the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics states that any spontaneously occurring process will always lead to an escalation in the entropy. 
Entropy, yep, I had to enunciate that one and look that one up too. The loss of usable energy. It will lead to an escalation in the loss of usable energy. So any system where something happens and it uses any energy, it will lead us to a place where the loss of usable energy will only increase. Okay? So the energy will decrease. Now, let's think reasonably. If the usable energy in our universe is decreasing, then at some point we will be all out. Right? If the usable energy is decreasing, then at some point we were full. Which means that our universe comes to an end at some point. And it also means our universe had a beginning at some point. So therefore, our universe cannot be a closed system. Because we said it cannot be a closed system where energy was created within the system because energy can't be created. It cannot be a closed system where it's always been because we just discovered that it had at some point a beginning. Therefore, our universe has to be an open system. That means it has to be that someone or something exists outside of the universe and is able to put things into the universe. Energy. Does that make sense? Now, there are some who might say, well, Pastor Ken, the universe by chance began with this low, low, low measure of entropy. And so it just by chance We already proved that by chance it couldn't happen, but let's just take that idea. A physicist, and you don't need to listen to me, you need to listen to a mathematical physicist at Oxford University. That's a pretty good school. Um, I'd say he's a pretty smart dude. His name is Sir Roger Penrose. He said this. He said, the probability that our universe started out at a low entropy on its own is one chance in the 10 to the 10th power to the 123rd power. Now, I will tell you, I hated science. I do like math, though. So let me interpolate that number for you. That's a big number. (laughs) It's got a lot of zeros. And when you put that one to that number, that means the chances of it starting on its own with a low entropy, with a low loss of usable energy, is infinitely small smaller than even the smallest molecule that could be detected are the chances that our universe started off with a low entropy. This number is so small that if it were written out in ordinary decimal form, the decimal would be followed by more zeros than there are particles in the universe. This is the chance that it started off by itself with low entropy. So something or someone had to intervene for our universe to start at a low loss of usable energy. The Hubble telescope also has discovered, the Hubble telescope has seen the galaxies that form our universe, and they discovered that 
our ga- the galaxies are moving away from each other at an increasing speed. Now, let's think logically again, okay? We've got galaxies moving away from each other at an increasing speed. That means that if we, re- if we turn the time back, that at some point they were not far from each other, but close. In fact, at some point, it started. And the Hubble telescope saw evidence of this with a big flash of light, kind of like a bang. You know, it's kind of like if somebody were to have a bunch of energy and to say, you know what? I think I want to start something. I want to design and create something that would be pretty cool. How could I do that? Here. Bang! Let there be light. Hmm. But it would have to come from something outside of the system, not something within the system. So the universe began. Where do we go from here? Well, let me tell you that astronomers are struggle. They struggle sometimes with the idea that the universe began. Robert Jastrow, who was the founder of the Goddard uh, Institute at NASA, pretty smart dude, worked for NASA. He said it like this. Theologians are generally delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning. But astronomers are curiously upset. It turns out that the scientist behaves the way the rest of us do when our beliefs are in conflict with the evidence. Maybe, just maybe, it's not God and science who are at war. Maybe there's something going on inside of people. So the universe began. Plato and Aristotle came up with this idea called the cosmological argument. They said it like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. So if something begins... Something caused that. Now, scientists have looked at this cosmological argument, and they have not been able to disprove it in any way, shape, or form. The next logical step is that our universe began to exist. Therefore, if whatever begins has a cause, and our universe began, then our universe has a Ah, Something caused our universe. Huh. Something or someone outside of our universe, outside of our system, caused it. What could that have been? Well, I believe that biology demands an intelligent designer. It demands us to look at all the evidence and say there has to be something or someone who's intelligent who created all of this. If we're saying that there is a cause, then there has to be someone intelligent because it's too complicated. You know, it's kind of like our, our galaxy, our universe. You know, there was a, there was a gentleman who, he, he was not a very good dude. His name was Lawrence Krauss. And he said this, he said, when you look at a CMB map, you also see that the structure that is observed is in fact, in a weird way, correlated with the plane of the earth around the sun. Hmm. Think about that. When you look at a map of the universe, the structure of the universe somehow resembles the rotation of the earth around the sun. How does it do that? 
How did the universe that somehow came out by accident look very similar to our orbit around the sun? We're looking at the whole universe. There's no way there should be a correlation of structure with our motion of the earth around the sun. The plane of the earth around the sun, the ecliptic, that would say we are truly the center of the universe. It brings up this idea of the, isotropic, uh, of the universe being isotropic. Here's what that means. That means that if the universe were caused by accident and not by an intelligent designer, then we would just literally do this, and at random, they should just spread out evenly, right? Here's the thing, even when I did it because I'm the one throwing the balls, it's not even. It's not even because there's an outside influence. Now, take it a step farther. Not only is it not even, but there's a shape to it. Man, you're telling me that it came by accident? Stephen Hawking, a physicist, cosmologist, one of the brightest minds of our time, said it like this. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think clearly there are religious implications. Now, Stephen Hawking was not a believer. He was not a Christian. He considered himself an atheist most of his life. I think clearly there are religious implications when we discuss the origins of their universe. They, there must be religious overtones. So, we've got the shape of the universe that indicates someone, something intelligent designed the universe and then put us on a planet where we could actually live. See, we're in a, on a planet in a zone in our galaxy called the Goldilocks zone in our solar system. The Goldilocks zone is a specific distance from the sun. You're asking how far? I don't know. Remember, I don't like science. It's just right. <laughs> See? It's kind of like the marshmallow. It's just right when you get it just the right distance from the fire. You get it too close to the fire, and it ends up burning the whole outside and tasting like a piece of charcoal. And I know some of y'all like to eat charcoal marshmallows. <laughs> Gross, people. I don't like marshmallows anyway, but I just thought I'd say that. If we were too close to the sun, just a couple of degrees off, we would roast just like marshmallows. If we were a couple of degrees the other way, we would freeze like popsicles. We exist in a perfect ecliptical around the sun so that we receive just the right amount of heat energy to produce life. Now. Scientists estimate, notice this is an estimation, that there are about 8.8 .8 million planets out there that are in the Goldilocks zone. And yet we have never found evidence of life anywhere else. I know some of y'all think you saw a UFO last week, but there is no hard evidence of life outside of Earth. Hmm. This doesn't mean something or that doesn't mean something planned it, you might say. Oh, Pastor Ken, you ever heard this one? Life would find a way. Where do we get evidence of that? 
Where has life ever found a way on its own? Have we ever seen anything that is, that is just simply matter and has no life somehow spontaneously generate life? There is no evidence to that. Life doesn't spontaneously generate. In fact, we can't even generate life out of dead matter. It requires life to generate life. In fact, to clone, we still have to have living cells in order to clone anything. Life does not spontaneously generate. Famed researcher Frederick Hoyle, who was a scientist and a mathematician, said it like this. Supposing the first cell originated by chance is like believing a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. <laughs> there was someone or something intelligent who designed life. Someone, something. Michael Denton said this, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it's impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a... Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. That's a unique word to use that when scripturally we serve a miracle-working God. Life doesn't spontaneously generate. Life has never been scientifically generated. Life is too complex. A one-cell organism has millions of molecular parts working together, and we are built from millions of cells and have whole systems of cells that work together. Dr. Henry Morris said the chance that any kind of 200-component integrated functioning organism could be developed by mutation and natural selection just once anywhere in the world in all of the assured expanse of geological time is less than one chance out of a billion trillion. Now, let me tell you what a 200-component integrated functioning organism is. It is a one-cell amoeba. The chance of that developing is one out of a billion trillion. What possible conclusion, therefore, can we derive from such considerations as this, except that evolution by mutation and natural selection is mathematically and logically indefensible? There is no evidence. So, Pastor Ken, what about evolution? I mean, we hear all about that in school, evolution. What about it? I mean, we, we can see it. What about the warbler, Pastor Ken, the, the bird, the warbler that grew a long beak? Well, what about the warbler? What if I told you that as Christians, we believe in one form of evolution? Now, some of you have been in the church all your life, just crossed your arms and, oh, what's this guy talking about? I'm going to tell you right now, you believe in evolution. If you have a labradoodle, you believe in evolution. A Labrador retriever, retriever and a poodle, a mommy and a daddy, got together and created a baby Labradoodle. It is a change, but not a change outside of the species. See, we believe in something called microevolution. 
Microevolution is the idea that some of you have brown eyes, some of you have blue eyes. Some of you have black hair, some of you have blonde hair, some of you have no hair. <laughs> this is microevolution. Thank goodness it's not survival of the fittest or those of us with no hair might not be here anymore. The warbler, what about that? The beak grew longer, Pastor Ken. Is it still a warbler? Then it's just microevolution. We can't use evidence of microevolution to prove that ants can become bees and donkeys can become human, although we've known some that look like it a little bit, or act like it, I'm sorry. Uh, or, or that apes become people. Listen, I didn't come from no monkey, y'all. I know my mama and daddy. Call them a monkey. We're going to fight. I'm going to throw hands. You, there is no fossil evidence of a transition from one species to another. Nowhere. And, and here's the question that I would have. If we truly believe that apes evolved to become humans, why do we still have apes? Logically, macroevolution doesn't make sense, and there's no evidence to prove it. We cannot use the evidence for microevolution to prove macroevolution. Here's where Christians get in trouble. Christians get in trouble when we hear the word evolution, we go, ah, that's of the devil. <laughs> and let's just be real. Some of us have done that, haven't we? Instead, next time, lean into it and go, yeah, I believe in microevolution, and maybe ask the question, what's the difference between micro and macroevolution? Maybe ask the question, do you have any fossil proof of macroevolution, of a change between species? Why not step in and understand what we believe and have that conversation? Because here's the thing, when we look at it, the evidence is on our side. It's on the side of Truth, and I believe in truth. Then there's this idea of irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity says that if you have a complex system, try to take one part of it and see if the system still survives. If it doesn't, then it could not have evolved to become that system or the, the entire system. So imagine that your body is a system. And let's just pick any of the little systems in your body. Erica, let's just pick your, your circulatory system. Let's pull out your heart, pull out all your blood vessels, and see if you can still function as a system. And if you cannot go backwards, how can you then go forward? How could something start without a circulatory system and somehow evolve to have it? All the systems were designed to work together. They were designed to work together. And this leads us to a place when we're dealing with the creation of such a complex world, universe, and system, even within you, of really only coming to one conclusion. We already said that someone outside, something outside the system had to input into it that someone or something had to be extremely intelligent to design you, me, the universe, our world, plants, the ecosystem, all these laws that we live by. They had to be stinking smart. So much smarter than me and you. 
so much smarter. Oh, but Pastor Ken, that could be, that could be anybody. That could be the universe itself. The universe itself is smarter than us and decided to design it. Who says, how do you come to the conclusion that that is the God that you're talking about from the Bible? Well, let's go to another area of science to look at it. We've looked at cosmology. We've looked at biology. Let's look at the behavioral sciences, psychology. According to the behavioral sciences, there are three basic needs of every human being. Three basic needs. Now, some behavioral scientists add three more in there, but they all agree on these three. The first basic need is competence. Competence. We all need to know and understand that our work makes a difference. That our work is important. That what we do, that we are competent in it. That we're good at it. In fact, I don't know about y'all, but if I'm not good at something, I don't like to do it. I like to pretend I don't know what I'm doing and walk away and let my wife do it or somebody else. Right? We all need competence. We need competence in a specific area. In fact, if we are not feeling competent in any area, that can lead to depression and lack of purpose. See, each one of us should be recognizing these thoughts even within ourselves. We need competence. Here's the thing. The need for competence could not have evolved because according to the idea of evolution, even in microevolution, anything that would cause a trait to cause harm when taken to an advanced extreme would be driven out of the species. Well, I have seen a lot of people who have worked themselves literally into an early grave because of a desire for competence. I think that there's no way that that could have evolved. That had to have been designed and placed. Pastor Ken, that could have been placed by any other God. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Do we really think that the Hindus who have a caste system and look at the lowest caste and the competence that they require from the lowest caste is to basically be trash pickers, to pick the, the pizza boxes up off the side of the highway, that that really does fulfill the need for competence in a human being. Is that cultural? Yes. But imagine if that were implemented right here in the United States. It would mean that at least one-seventh, probably more like closer to a half of the room, would be trash pickers on the side of the road. Would you feel competent doing that? Would you feel fulfilled? Well, Pastor Ken, how do you know that the God that you serve agrees with that? Well, let's talk about that in a minute, but first I want to tell you about connection. See, you're built for connection. You're built to connect with other people. You're built to have relationships. In fact, in our modern world, we have this struggle with the internet where we're building these relationships online, but yet we have the highest depression rate in the history of mankind. 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with relationships that begin online and happen online. Well, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we were built for connecting person to person. We were created for that. Oh, Pastor Ken, that could have evolved. No, because again, if you begin to take that to its extreme, how many people in the history of our world, how many stories have you heard where people have died because of the love that they have for someone else, that they have given up their life for that love? It would have evolved its way out of our behavioral pattern. And all of the people who are more stoic and don't need a direct connection would have created their own evolutionary process because the rest of us would have died. See, we were designed for that. We were built for connection with one another. Unlike this idea in Buddhism that says, you know what? There is no God except for you. You Maybe you're a God and your highest possible goal is to ascend into the nothingness of the universe. That doesn't meet this need that I have for connecting with people. There's no end that that meets in Buddhism. What about this third need? The third need is autonomy. That we have a need, a desire to be autonomous, to be able to make choices on our own. Again, would not have survived evolution. I mean, imagine the the hunter-gatherers. We just... Last time I went to Nepal, we were climbing up this mountain to go and visit a village and on like a four or five hour trek. About halfway through, Pastor Raju starts telling us about the tiger that had been hunting and, and doing stuff to the other village on the next mountain. And I look at Pastor Brent and I look at Raju and I go, okay, I'm moderately scared, but I can run faster than both of them, so I'm good. It's illegal to kill tigers, but you know what that village did? They killed the tiger. But the way that they did it was they got together in a group and killed it. This need for autonomy is not answered in evolution because as people, we naturally band together and those who are left apart get picked off. It doesn't fit within these other world religions either. I mean, imagine in Islam, would Allah be okay with you making your own choice? No, that's punishable not only in the afterlife, but it's also punishable here because there are Christians right now in Middle Eastern countries who they can't get a job because they've chosen Jesus. When they get sold items, they get sold items at an increased rate because they chose Jesus. Autonomy doesn't get answered in that. But all three of these get answered when we look at the Bible. Where, Pastor Ken, where do they get answered? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And let me tell you, when you look at that word good in the Greek, the first five definitions of it talk about the excellence of the work that you were created for. Only the sixth one talks about the morality of the work. You were created for good works. You were created to do good work, to be competent in what you do in Christ Jesus. 
You were created for connection because in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like unto this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. See, Jesus said the greatest commandment you can fulfill is connection with God and with your neighbor. The greatest one. It's connection. Oh, but what about autonomy, Pastor Ken? There's no way that the God of the Bible likes autonomy. He, he, people go to hell in, in the Bible. Well, well, here's the thing. According to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. This is God talking. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. God could have stopped right there and proved that we have autonomy, proved that he's giving us a choice. But he goes on because of his great love for us. See, love compels choice. God's greatest desire is to be loved by you. He already loves you. His greatest desire is to be loved by you. But he knows that he cannot make you love him. He gives you autonomy because love is a choice that you get to make. You get to choose who you love. And he wants you to choose who you love because he says this. He says, therefore, choose life. He says, choose life. Don't choose death. That you and your offspring may live. See, God designed our desires to fulfill his creation of us. God designed us and he designed our behavior. He designed our desires to fulfill this creation. This is how we know that the God of the Bible is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the God that created you and me. And he's a God that exists right now and he wants to speak into our lives. Come on, stand up with me. See, here's the thing. God doesn't hate science. Science is simply our study of the truth or maybe our study of God and what he's done. Because here's the thing, God is truth. And here's what I wanna encourage you as a, as, as a person in the room today. Don't be afraid of science. If science is simply the search for truth, truth is never scared of the search. Truth is never afraid of the questions. So if we believe in the truth, why are we? Why are we? In fact, Albert Einstein said it like this. He said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. He was not a believer. Maybe this morning you've come in searching for what is true. Searching. Maybe you've looked all over. You've looked for truth. You've looked for what, what really did start the universe. Robert Jastrow, the, the guy who founded the Goddard Institute at NASA, he said it like this because you're not alone. There have been thousands upon thousands of scientists, astronomers, cosmologists, all kinds of people who have looked for the truth is, where is God? He says they, they, they've climbed this mountain of ignorance and they climb over the peak, they crest the mountain in this search for truth, only to find theologians who've been waiting on them for centuries. 
Why? Because God didn't want you to be blind to his revelation. He wanted to share it with you. And here's what he's asking from you. Will you believe? Here's the evidence. Will you believe? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing and sharing this on all your social platforms? If you are moved by the message and would love to share your testimony, please email it to amen at myariseChurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged. See you next time. Thank you.